Are you trying to squeeze the starting solid food stuff into your already busy schedule? Well, I have an all-in-one done-for-you solution that's going to take the guesswork out of feeding your baby. My online program is called Baby Led Weaning with Katie Ferraro. It contains all of my baby led weaning training videos, the original 100 First Foods content library, plus a 100-day meal plan with recipes like the exact sequence of which foods to feed in which order. So if you want to stop trying to piece all this feeding stuff together on your own, I would be honored if you would join me inside of the program. You can get signed up at babyledweaning.co slash program. Checking in about food allergies and introducing allergenic foods. And have you done peanut with your baby yet? Well, intact nuts and thick globs of nut butters like peanut butter are choking hazards for babies, but we want to get that peanut protein into your baby early and often in order to help lower the risk of peanut allergy down the road. My absolute favorite way to introduce peanuts for babies is using the Puffworks Baby Peanut Puffs. So When you hear puffs, like you're probably like, oh, those starchy little puff things. Like, no, no, no. Not the little ones that earlier eaters can't pick up. Those kind of crappy puffs from the store that have added sugar and refined grains and lots of salt. Uh uh. The Puffworks baby peanut puffs have no added sugar. They have just a smidge of sodium for preservatives, and they are the perfect size for baby led weaning. They're about the size of your adult pinky finger. So, you can, baby can pick them up, self-feed them, but they're so soft that they dissolve in your baby's mouth so you can introduce these peanut puffs even before your baby has teeth. Puffworks also makes a baby almond puff for the safe introduction of a separate allergenic food category. That's tree nuts. And now, finally, Puffworks put out a combo case. So it's half baby peanut and half baby almond. So if you want to grab one case, then you can knock out two new allergenic foods. We do these on different days, though. These are just the no-stress, low-mess way to get peanut and tree nut out of the way. So you can get 15% off everything at puffworks.com when you use the affiliate discount code BLWPOD. That's a new code. It's BLWPOD. Use that sucker at checkout at puffworks.com and get peanut and tree nut safely out of the way. I'm a mom. I have a two and a half year old. And the idea that any parent who is facing the possibility of not being able to get their children the basic nutrition that they need, you can't imagine anything more terrifying as a parent. Hey there, I'm Katie Ferraro, registered dietitian, college nutrition professor, and mom of seven specializing in baby led weaning. Here on the Baby Led Weaning Made Easy podcast, I help you strip out all of the noise and nonsense about feeding leaving you with the confidence and knowledge you need to give your baby a safe start to solid foods using baby-led weaning. Hi guys, here to talk about the infant formula recall and the shortage. And I know this is an incredibly stressful topic and reality for a lot of you. And it's definitely not a topic that we take lightly in infant feeding and nutrition. And so I'm really excited that today's guest can join us. She's Helena Bottomiller-Evich. She is the senior food and agriculture reporter at Politico. She is an incredible person, incredible researcher, writer, and she probably knows more about what's going on with these joint situations of the recall and then the shortage. And I really, really appreciate her insight. So again, just acknowledging that this is a really hard topic. The personal stories coming out of parents, especially of babies on hydrolyzed formulas and not having access to all sorts of formula is really tragic. And so just a little background before joining Politico, Helena reported on food politics and policy at Food Safety News. She has appeared in the Columbia Journalism Review. She's originally from Washington State, now living in Washington, D.C. And she's written some of the most groundbreaking 
reporting and broke some of the biggest stories that just unfortunately just keep getting worse in this story. So she's going to be breaking it all down for us in this episode, which is about unpacking the infant formula recall and the formula shortage with Helena bottomiller Evich. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks. I know kind of the topic that we're talking about today is certainly not uplifting. I've been reading everything that you're researching, writing on the formula recall and now the formula shortage. And I'm so excited to chat with you. But before we dive in, could you give us a little bit of your background? How did you come to be the senior food and agriculture writer at Politico? Yeah, so I actually was a gov major in college and I wrote my thesis on FDA and food policy like more than 10 years ago. And from that, I accidentally became a journalist. So I have been focused on food policy for a long time now. I've been in Washington since 2009, Washington, D.C., that is. I'm from Washington State originally. And so I've been really following, you know, FDA, USDA, all of the different political, all the political wrangling that affects our food system from school lunch to the farm bill um, for a while now. And people think this is a really narrow beat. Like it it sounds narrow. Oh, food. How, what a niche topic. This is like you cover everything. It's so broad. It's people I think are shocked at how broad it is. I mean, it includes health and education and labor and the environment. And so it's been a really interesting journey. And I, I really still love the topic. I have not gotten bored of it yet. There's always something new to learn. Okay. I don't know if this dates me, but like 20 years ago, Marion Nestle's food politics book came out and I was in graduate school at UC Berkeley. So I'm a registered dietitian. I did an MPH in public health nutrition at Berkeley. And then Marion was on sabbatical the next year. So she was at Berkeley. And I remember like reading her book being like, this is so messed up. Like I went into nutrition to be like, I want to help people. It's like too bad. It's like highly politicized. I had no idea. And then also like hearing her perspective and then I just love your perspective. I mean, your kind of expose on the FDA, like, okay, first question, was it as messed up 10 years ago as it is now? Like, we always think like, oh, it's the worst right now. The formula recall is definitely the worst and we'll get there. But like the whole political situation at the FDA and it's like the F is for food, but everyone forgets that. So it's such a good question. And it's interesting you bring up Marian Nessel because I actually interviewed her for my thesis when I was in college. And by interview, I mean like she agreed to take a few questions over email. She's very gracious. She spoke yes. at our baby led weaning summit. She's like, I don't know anything about babies, but I'd be happy to talk about food politics. I was like, awesome. And she's also um, has a great dry sense of humor if you ever get to spend any time with her. But I was so starstruck by her when I was in college. I was like, I can't believe she would help me with my thesis. And of course, she doesn't remember this because she helped so many people. And I ended up on a panel with her, like, I don't know, seven or eight years later. And I realized she had no idea. I was like, yeah, you actually helped me, you know, forever ago. She loves you now. You're in her newsletter all the time, Helena. She's fantastic. So food politics. Yes, I read I read that book um, when I was in college. And it, I think it is really eye-opening because you just, you don't really get a sense for how political these issues can be until you really dive into them. And then you realize, like, there are knife fights over, like, the smallest of things. Like, you know, whether or not we should have white potatoes in in the WIC program. I mean, you would be shocked at what people can fight over. Juice, you know. I went on, I'm sorry, because I'm in nutrition. And like, I'm like, no, I totally get it. Like, we just had Darlena Birch from the National WIC Association on to talk about the proposed food changes to the WIC package. 600 page document. Like, are you serious? But like, to summarize it down and have people to explain it. Like, I'm so grateful for your work. Cause like, I'm so sorry. I'm not going to read all 600 pages. I don't know oh, how you do it. With so kids. there's like, so many details and people can get bogged down in them. And you know, there's a lot of money on the line. I think that's why this is so political. I mean, food is like a trillion dollar plus 
sector. I mean, it's really big. And baby food's a couple bills, so it's not small potatoes in there either. It's not small. And so, you know, what people think about these foods, what they're willing to pay for them, the marketing, there's so much wrapped up into this and it, it is big business. So to your question of like, I don't know if it is better or worse than when Marion Nussel wrote that book. I know it's been updated a few times, but I think the dynamics still hold that these are still highly political issues. Yeah, I mean, the agriculture department setting nutrition policy, like, mm, I don't know, potential conflict of interest, but that's a different discussion because we have to talk about formula and our parents listening, caregivers, they're just starting the transition to solid foods. A lot of them are reliant on commercial infant formula for their baby's nutrition. So this topic is really near and dear to many hearts. And I know it's a complicated story, but could you share the kind of the background story of what triggered the formula recall? How did this come to be? Yeah, so in mid-February, we saw a lot of news reports about this really massive recall that affected, um, you know, Similac, which is the number one brand of formula in the U.S., as well as Elecare and Elementum, some pretty major brands. And essentially, it was it was triggered by four consumer complaints of infant hospitalizations for Cronobacter sakazakia. And they're, it's a bacteria that causes really rare infections, but they can be really serious. So of these four reports, actually two of the infants died. And it's just incredibly tragic. And, you know, it essentially sparked a um, closer look at this, the plant that makes those products in Sturgis, Michigan. The FDA did a many, many week inspection in that plant and found some pretty serious food safety issues. They found five strains of Cronobacter in the plant. None of the strains have matched the two genetic fingerprints that we have from two of the cases. So that's kind of complicated things here, but it is basically shuttered or, or halted production at this really major infant formula plant. And it sounds like Abbott Nutrition, the company that makes these formulas, and the FDA have been in like a really long sort of negotiation over how best to reopen the plant, and it's still not operational. So it's a major hit to the supply of infant formula. And parents were already reporting complaints about sporadic shortages and supply chain problems before this happened. So supply outages were actually elevated starting, well, they've been there have been challenges throughout the pandemic, but last summer it started to get worse. And then over the holidays, it was pretty bad and it has just gotten a lot worse since this shutdown. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. If you've been thinking about giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. It's a convenient, flexible, affordable, and entirely online experience. All you do is just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can also switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. I used to think therapy was just for people who have experienced major trauma, but therapy can help you be at your best no matter what you're going through. So whether it's to learn new positive coping skills, set more realistic boundaries, or just show up as a better version of yourself, BetterHelp is here to help. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. If you want to live a more empowered life, therapy can help you get there and BetterHelp can help you. Visit BetterHelp.com slash weaning today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash weaning and get 10% off your first month. So one of the most pressing concerns you mentioned before the like amino acid, the hydrolyzed formulas, the really specialized formulas that are often given to babies with like 
either really rare metabolic conditions or GI conditions that are hard to treat or severe allergies, those formulas, it appears this plant had almost a near monopoly on production of those formulas or really the lion's share. So then when you shut that down, you basically cause a run on all the other brands. And so I have been on the phone with parents just sobbing. The stories are amazing. And then like your stories of their stories, I can't even imagine. Yeah. I mean, it's horrible. I'm a mom. I have a two and a half year old. And the idea that any parent who is facing the possibility of not being able to get their children the basic nutrition that they need, I mean, you can't imagine anything more terrifying as a parent. I mean, it's just, it's horrible. There's no other word for it. Um, So FDA is trying to work with Abbott to get some of that supply out ASAP. But you can't just like restart production on hydrolyzed formulas. It's like a very specialized system. I mean, how are they going to do it if the Sturgis plant's still not operational? So they do have some supply. My understanding is there's some supply at the plant that was produced during the recall period. So under informed consent, the company can release formula as needed to like you're basically if you need this type of formula, your doctor or healthcare provider can request it from Abbott directly and they should be sending it free of charge to try to relieve some of those life-threatening, you know, situations people are in. But I think if you step back, just the fact that we're in this position at all is so is so stressful and I think everyone yeah, agrees it shouldn't happen right now. Yeah, no, this is, I mean, you know, as parents, sorry, you guys can't, you know, we can't get ice cream or whatever. It doesn't matter. An infant has no other source of nutrition if they're not able to consume human milk. Like this is insane. And also just, I know you're hearing it too, but the stories of parents watering down formula is like how in this day and age in 2022, are we even talking about this? Yeah, it's really shocking. And I I mean, So far, for the most part, with the infant formula, the general supply, the shortages, they're really concerning, but hopefully they're not so critical that parents are unable to find any formula. They're probably doing a lot of substitution. It's probably extremely disruptive. As anyone who's had a kid on formula knows, like it's not as easy as just flipping a switch. You can't just like get, you know, there might be resistance, there might be gas or fussiness. Even with the recall when they were like, oh, just switch to the liquid. Like I've had babies that will not drink the already constituted like formulas because they smell so terrible. I'm like, you can't just switch formula all the time. Yeah. So there's that issue, which for sure there's a lot of brand disruption. There's a lot of, some of the data suggests it's anywhere right now. So we're May into May here. It's depending on what data you're looking at, it's anywhere from like 60 to 79% stocked. So that's like really low compared to normal times. Normal times would be like 95% of, yeah. the, the, of the SKUs are like in stock. So it's it's really low. And my sense is these outages, like where you go to Target and there's nothing on the shelves, those are sporadic. So it shouldn't be every place. You should still be able to access it. But the fact that you're having to drive multiple places, check multiple websites, That is such an already very expensive product. Yeah. It's just really stressful. These specialty formulas, though, are in a really critical shortage. So I'm I'm really hoping those are going to get like prioritized and addressed very, very soon. And I know you really have your ear to the ground this way. I'm so grateful that you came on to chat about it. Like I know you've been following this since I mean the first reports, I think, was September of 2021. Like most of us just started hearing about it in February. I'll be honest, the mainstream media has only picked up on it like a week ago. Oh, yeah. No, it's awful. 
And so, and then now, like, even my like, next door, which I try to ignore, but somehow shows up and it's like, I will drive to the store and get you formula if you need it. And I was like, oh my gosh, like the old people in my neighborhood are paying this attention to this. Like, this is real. Is it going to get worse before it gets better in your opinion? Well, it, you know, it's such a good question. I, you know, as someone who's part of the media, I, I am the first to criticize. Like, I think there has been a total lack of coverage here, a lack of, you know, paying attention to this issue, not only the shortage question, but also like following the actual Abbott nutrition recall and what we've learned in the aftermath, what FDA did and didn't do, you know, what did we learn about inspections? There aren't really any reporters following that national story throughout, like I have been, which has been concerning, you know, as someone who's part of the media, but also as a parent, like I just think it's really short changing a, a truly national story that affects like millions of people. So I've been really dismayed by that. But on the flip side, when you do have a lot of coverage on just a shortage generally without sort of proper context, you can actually make the shortages worse. So you can cause, you know, there is the natural parental or caregiver inclination that if you hear there's a shortage and then you see some formula, you're going to buy like way more than you need. And I, I really hope that parents can resist that urge as much as possible. For sure, get what you need and, you know, take care of your family, but try not to panic buy. You can make it a lot worse. I hope if any parents have extra formula, they can be really generous on their parents list serves or social media and make sure you're getting that to, to families who might really be short right now. Helena, as far as the timeline goes, like I think one of the bigger stories here is like the gap between when there started to be issues of obviously it is so sad that literally babies are dying. You say how many babies have to die before someone pays attention? But what's supposed to happen? Like I think we've had such a dysfunctional food and FDA system for so long. Like is this the new normal? Well the old normal was weird too. But like is the amount of time that took place between the first reporting and then when the recall actually started, like, let's not lose sight of that. Like, that's problematic, yeah. right? Yeah, that's a good question. So just to unpack that timeline, once the recall happened, and I went through and kind of looked at, like, when FDA had gotten the reports and when the actual cases happened, I realized that the first case that was reported to FDA was in September. And it was from the state of Minnesota, which is the only state that requires Cronobacter cases be reported like up the public health chain. There are probably other states that will catch it through like other, you know, if a child gets meningitis, they might catch it that way. But Cronobacter isn't what's called like a reportable or notifiable disease like salmonella or E. coli or listeria. So because Minnesota had the first case, I, you know, I immediately got in touch with the state and was like, when exactly, you know, was this? When did you give it to FDA and CDC? And so they confirmed, you know, they gave it, they reported it, that case. It was a, an infant that had been hospitalized for 22 days. The baby survived, but they reported that case to FDA September 20th. September 21st, FDA contacted Abbott because they knew that the infant had consumed formula from the Sturgis, Michigan plant. And then, so that's September. We know that FDA did not go back in and inspect that plant until January 31st. And then the recall happened February 17th. So there are a lot of questions about what should have happened. I think it's, you know, reasonable to think that there wouldn't have been a recall off of one report. You don't know, you know, what happened or obviously all this needs investigated. But by the time you get the second, third, fourth report of hospitalizations and two deaths, you know, at what point would we expect the government to have at least gone back to the plant and maybe investigated further? 
Um, there was a long time between then. And then recently we learned that there was a whistleblower. A whistleblower. Yeah, who in October, a former plant employee in October had sent a really detailed document outlining really serious food safety allegations to top FDA officials, including the acting commissioner. Like 30-something pages, right? Have you read the original? Like, you have the source document. Yeah, I'll send it to you if you want to read it. I mean, it's— Your reporting is like blockbuster, gangbuster stuff. I'm like, this is amazing because I hate to say it keeps getting worse. Yeah, it's really disheartening. I mean, I feel like there's probably like nine lessons that can be learned from this situation and we're still in it and we're still kind of in the emergency response mode. But there are a lot of questions about what could have been done differently and also like how consolidated the infant formula industry is because one plant is such a major piece of the American supply. I mean, it it does raise questions about like the vulnerability and sort of resiliency of our supply chain. So I know the whistleblower story is a whole different story, but can you, like some of the specifics in there, could you just share? Because I remember I've been reading some of your other reporting and I was like, for real, like this is happening? Well, I think, you know, the overall allegation is that this whistleblower says they were basically terminated for raising food safety concerns at the plant. So that's like the first thing that's concerning, I think, as a consumer. They allege that, you know, there was some improper like record keeping, things that were intentionally kept from FDA inspectors. They allege that weird things like the plant, I guess, had trouble keeping the infant formula cans like properly sealed when they were in production. So sometimes like infant powder would get in the seal and and that's obviously like a quality and safety concern. So the allegation is that Instead of really fixing that issue, company officials started just testing the seal on empty cans instead of testing the seal on full cans. I mean, stuff like that where, A, that would be a really weird thing to make up. Like, we obviously don't have, like, confirmation that that happened. But if that could even feasibly happen in a plant like this, that really, to me, raises questions about, like, a poor food safety culture, poor corporate culture, and a lot of questions about, like, their testing. There's also after the fact, been questions from FDA about whether or not the plant was properly investigating consumer complaints. So there's a lot of layers here and a lot of um, concerning flags for sure. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, I have been a dietitian for over 20 years. I can't even remember, at least in recent history, like such anxiety around formula for parents. And you mentioned all of the other contributing factors. Do you think that this is all a sign of a bigger problem or is this Abbott recall an anomaly? And it's unfortunate that one company controls the majority of the formula industry, but that's why the majority of the formula industry is impacted. Or is this like systemic? Because I know you've researched a lot of other food safety concerns across other non-infant formula sectors as well. It's a really good question. I don't think we know yet. I think the one thing that does concern me is looking at like the out of stock data for the year and realizing that there have been issues for a long time with just a stable sort of consistent 
in stock supply chain. Like pre-pandemic? Not pre-pandemic, throughout COVID. So it is true that the industry is really consolidated, and I think we're going to see a lot more questions about that. I am hopeful that this is going to get better. I think companies and the government are, and retailers are like all over this. They are trying everything to increase supply and, and get this ironed out. It's obviously like a very pressing issue. I think the thing that concerns me long-term is more like the global sourcing, ingredient sourcing issue. So I don't want to cause anyone any more anxiety. But one thing that is important, I think, keep on the radar for the future is, you know, things like sunflower oil or palm oil, these ingredients that can be important in infant formula. As the global like food supply chain becomes more strained with like um, Russia's war on Ukraine and just the overall strain that we're going through with um, uh, demand and inflation, I think those are the long-term things that concern me. But I really do think there's a lot of pressure to get this figured out very soon. So I'm I'm hopeful that it's going to get figured out. I don't want to cause anyone any any anxiety. You know, this country is capable of doing a lot when we put our mind to it. And this is obviously really important. Helena, your article, The FDA's Food Failure, I think one of the most eye-opening pieces I've read in a long time. And it's just, if you guys are interested, I'm going to link to all of the articles we're discussing here on the show notes page for this episode. But it's an incredible deep dive to like the dangerous, neglectful attitudes and practices surrounding the food safety at the FDA. And I mean, the only part I like laughed out loud at was your inclusion of like the longstanding joke among FDA officials that the F in the FDA is silent. But I mean, I walked away, I'm a very positive person, but feeling like super dejected, like this is like pre-Upton Sinclair, like the jungle days, like who's driving the ship? And is there anything that parents and caregivers of babies can do to be advocates for food safety in our current system? Well, I do think it's good to remember that Things were really bad around the Upton Sinclair. Okay, sorry, I didn't want to like say like we are in the jungle era, yeah, but yeah, like yeah. for real, like we made all these changes. Mm-hmm, yeah. And now there's all these breaks in the system that was supposed to be the change, you know, like. Yeah, I be- I think it's good to always ask these questions of, is the oversight level we have from the government like the right one, right? So for meat and poultry, we have inspectors in the plants day in and day out. They can't operate. And I think that's one of the things that surprises consumers to learn is that FDA is just much more hands-off. You know, they might be in a plant every couple of years. It's just not the same level of oversight. But, you know, retailers and buyers of food do impose a lot of requirements on, on you know, those who they're sourcing from. So it's not like there isn't any force that's like asking for more audits or checks. So I, I do think that's important to remember. But But certainly like, if food safety and food quality is really important to you, I think like making that known to your representatives is probably a useful outlet for that concern. One of the things with food is you know in this country is I think we often just sort of take for granted that it's just there and you know it's there, it's cheap. Yeah, and now that it's getting yeah. more expensive and like we're having some supply chain we're issues, starting to pay attention. And we do at the end of the day still have one of the safest food supplies in the world. Like, Absolutely, I mean, one baby dying is is one too many. However, is this a system-wide problem. Again, it's not as good as it could be. Yeah, I think, you know, whenever people ask me about like the heavy metals and baby food thing or any of these things, my general thing I say after having talked to a lot of experts is don't panic, but also can't we do better, right? Like it's sort of that mantra of experts are not going to be like, stop feeding your baby like commercial sweet potato. I mean, no, but- They kind of have with rice cereal though, you have to admit. Well, rice cereal, yeah, it's a whole different thing. So we could could talk about that, but- We've done tons of stuff on rice cereal. Audience is very 
it's so aware of it. I mean, there's, yeah. it's out of some of the food packages in some state WIC associations. Like, this is major, you know? Yeah, rice is sort of in its its own category, but it's like, you know, don't panic. We need to eat healthy foods. There's also like very little you can do to avoid some of these things because like if lead is uptaking in spinach, like you're not going to not eat like Yeah, buying organic greens. doesn't do anything. Yeah, right. They don't there's, care. there's nothing you can do to avoid it. However, like I think the question is like, can't we have some standards? I mean, every expert you talk to, even the food industry is like, yeah, some standards would be good, right? Like let's- That's not industry self-policing themselves. Exactly. So- even like a lot of these upstart baby food companies, they want standards. I mean, they're they spending I know, I know. a ton of money testing and, you know, sourcing, and they would like there to be sort of base level guidelines that everyone's following. So, you know, it's kind of both those things. But I think also an upstart baby food company compared to Gerber and Abbott, like that's apples and oranges. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're definitely trying to differentiate as well, right? But I think I think it's important that people don't fear their food. I mean, I know a lot about food safety and I still eat without fear. I don't, you know, there are very few things that I avoid. And I I think it's important for people, you know, you can demand better and have more standards without like panicking or being afraid of your food. It's a hard thing to balance, but I think it's the right balance. Okay. Sorry that these questions in the discussion did end up being pretty depressing, but I really appreciate your expertise. And to wrap things up, wondering if based on all your reporting and research, like any bright spots on the horizon regarding infant formula safety and access based on recent developments that you certainly have been central in bringing to light? I think we are entering a time of like incredible innovation in food. There is going to be a lot more competition. There is going to be a lot more technology that is coming into play. I mean, I think parents are going to have even more choices going forward. I think we're in a period right now of strain with you know, these supply chain constraints and inflation and labor shortages. So I think it's going to be a little bit rocky generally sort of in food world for a bit here. But I am very optimistic that things are going to improve, that we're going to have even more options. If you look at some of the the startups and even what the CPGs are doing to like transition to healthier products or even trying to source products with lower carbon footprints, there's a lot happening um, that I think points to you know, reason to have optimism. But it's also fair for people to demand more and demand better standards and higher quality along the way. I think consumers really do have a lot of power to, to drive where we're headed. Helena, where can our audience go to stay up to date on developments in the whole infant formula safety and access situation and then also to support your work? So you can find me on Twitter at hbottomiller. And also, I haven't told that many people this, but I am going to be launching a food policy newsletter soon. You know, if any of your listeners are really interested in this stuff, want to stay up on food policy, you can just shoot me an email, h-b-e-v-i-c-h at gmail. So h-b-e-v-i-c-h at gmail, and I will put you on my early list. Well, I hope Helena's insight kind of shed some light on what's going on and some of, I mean, this is obviously a very complicated issue and I'm so grateful that she was here to kind of break it down as to what has happened and what has currently happened. And I look forward to following her work to see what will continue to unfold in the unfortunate situations going on with the formula recall and then now the formula shortage. So I am going to link to all of the relevant articles and a lot of other Helena related resources, including her email address, which she just straight up gave us her Gmail, you guys, 
I'll put that on the show notes for this episode. And I just highly encourage you if you're interested in in-depth reporting about food safety to follow Helena Vodemiller-Evich. It's going to be on the show notes page for this episode, which you can find at blwpodcast.com. Thanks so much for listening. <music>